special guest. Warren Hoffman is joining us by telephone. Warren is an author, a scholar, a playwright, and I'm going to add in a big thinker. His book, The Great White Way, Race and the Broadway Musical, this second edition came out in February of 2020, and uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about that. So, Warren, thanks for joining us on Broadway Radio. Thanks for inviting me, James. I'm so glad to be here. So your book, The Great White Way, you had a second edition, which is, I'm, I'm going to say, unusual for a niche book like this, but it's very, <laughs> very interesting that you were able to uh, do a second edition and revisit a lot of different things, especially given that uh, topics that you've covered, like uh, the, uh, the Music Man and West Side Story are either coming back to Broadway or, or are back on Broadway in... Uh, uh, did you get a chance to see West Side the other night? Because I, I don't know if that was canceled or not. Um, I was really lucky. A friend and I, we had bought tickets a few weeks ago, and we saw the very last performance of West Side Story before they shut the theaters down. So um, so I feel lucky to have uh, to have gotten to see it, um, period, um, especially given everything that's that's going on right now. So you covered West Side Story in your book, and and this Eva Van Hova, um production of West Side is dramatically different than traditional West Side stories. So uh, give us your take on this West Side story. It's, wow, where do you even begin with it? Um, <laughs> for the, you know, it, it really is so different than any other production of it that I've seen. I saw the last Broadway revival, um, which even though uh, the major change to that is that it uh, enabled the sharks to speak in Spanish for a lot of the show, mm. was fairly traditional um, in its approach, and of course used the Jerome Robbins choreography. Um, I would say the biggest change, or a couple changes to this production, are that it really, the the style of the show, it's it's been con- contemporized. Um, it takes place now. Um, uh, the the jets or sharks, both maybe. At one point, you know, they, they have cell phones. Um, there's a lot of video in the show. Um, they're, what they're, they're, the costuming is very contemporary. Um, it's what people would be wearing today. Um, and, and that, I liked, I really actually more than like love that part of it because it made the show really um, accessible and felt fresh um, and exciting. And there was, it was really thrilling. I mean, there's no intermission now. The show, it's like a bullet train it just just goes but where i think the show this production is a bit um uh, it, i don't know if it entirely works is that even though the style takes uh is very contemporary and modern um the text is still 1957 hmm. um and so there are these things that that sometimes people are saying whether it's some of the racial racial epithets that they're using um or just how they're talking about puerto rico in ways that I don't think people are talking about Puerto Rico today, um, don't really seem to, to fit. Um, so there's that aspect. And in some ways, I was telling a friend, it's, it's at times like you're watching two different productions of West Side Story at the same time. What you're watching visually with all of these big screens and what they're wearing and the, and the contemporary dance, and then what they're saying, which is from a different time period. So that's, that's a little bit of a, of a tension. But one of the other biggest changes in this production is that the Jets are no longer um, just white. Um, there are African-American Jets um, uh, included in there as well. And so that really does change, I think, a little bit about what this show um, uh, is about and maybe what it's trying to, to say about uh, you know, racial and ethnic identities at different moments in time. You know, it, 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 
the whole Jets and the Sharks thing has been so thought of as, uh, you know, uh, a racist uh, fight between the two groups. And now it's been changed up, as you've mentioned. And this is, uh, uh, you know, one of the structures of the discussions in your book, The Great White Way. Uh, how does, you know, how does that change? Uh, uh, does it dilute this, this, the meaning of West Side Story uh, at the end uh, when, you know, you're trying to bring the two groups together? You know, it's a it's a great question, and part of it is that I think von Hove's um, interpretation is a bit um, it, well. Well, let's put it this way: it is while well intentioned, I think a bit muddled at times. Hmm. I'll give a quick example. One of the, the again, there are so many visuals. The if um, if you've seen the show, um, it uses the, the the back wall of the stage. It's just this huge video. Um, screen. Um, very sophisticated, very well done. And while some of the video that we see is actually live, a lot of it is is pre-filmed. And there's a moment, for example, in which I think, what number is it? Oh, it is during the um, the number America, um, about that the, that the sharks sing about differences between the U.S. and um, Puerto Rico. Um, but towards the end of that number, the imagery we see is of the wall uh, between U.S. and Mexico. Hmm. And so clearly there is a political statement about race being made about, okay, the, the real sort of tension today is not between Puerto Rico and, and the U.S., even though that's already a, a false dichotomy because Puerto Rico is in the U.S., as we yeah. know from the mm-hmm. song. Sure. But really this tension that's come up between Mexico and, and, and the U.S. Um, and so it's interesting sort of seeing the, the visuals say one thing about, you know, where is where the, the racial tension today? versus the fact that, again, throughout the whole show, they keep demonizing Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans. And so it doesn't quite work. You, I almost kept hoping that they would, I don't know, change who the different groups are to, just so it makes sense with what we're watching on stage. Huh. It's, so it, it's made us think that this new production of an old musical has made us uh, see something new and think about uh, life in a different way yet again, which I guess, you know, for me, that's the purpose of theater. I, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I'm, uh, you know, what's the point of seeing the the same production uh, where the uh, the Jets are white bread and the Sharks are, are just straight uh, stereotypical Puerto Ricans? You know, what's the purpose of seeing a revival of that? I mean... But well, the other, the other I was going to say, but you know, what's interesting is that and I talk a little bit about this in in my chapter uh, about West Side Story. Um, so the, the Jets, I would argue, are not white bread. Um, as a matter of fact, Arthur Lawrence, when he was writing the book, he's 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 very clear to to signal that these aren't waspy Americans who are on the streets; that they're very much recent immigrants who have, have recently become white, and that's actually really important to how we understand race in this show. Um, and so, therefore, it also begs the question, if that's who these folks are, and they're still talked about in this way, does it make sense to talk about all of these recent immigrants from um, Poland and Italy and, and, and Ireland um, uh, in, in, again in 2020? Um, it, it, those are the things that felt dated to me um, mm. and didn't quite work. 
So the second edition of your book also includes new chapters about Book of Mormon and Hamilton. So when the first one came out in 2014, uh, and then you have this Hamilton's explode yeah. onto the screen. Uh, I mean, it, uh, you must have been like, oh, if I had a chance to go back and do that again. And you did have a chance to go back. So what, what's your take on how Hamilton, uh, you know, what, uh, how is this wild success of this Broadway, yeah. which is a typically very white uh, form of art, um, how can you explain this, and, and uh, what's your take on it? Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, I, was, I felt so lucky to be able to go back to a work that I was really proud of and then uh, think about all this stuff in, in a new way and, and, and talk about something that I, I hadn't uh, addressed before. And when the book came out, um, it, it, was, it was just a, you know, a bunch of months, a year maybe, when that Hamilton took off. And everybody kept asking me, but what do you think about Hamilton? <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> as a sort of yeah. authority, um, so to speak, about these issues. Um, and so to be able to sort of really think about this was great. Um, uh, there's a lot that I say about Hamilton, and I don't want to. I'm, I'm won't sort of uh, uh, put it all here because I want still people yeah, to go yeah, out and, and, and check out a copy. Um, but you know, one thing that's really interesting um, about well, here here are some of the two two sort of major takeaways. Um, so one thing that's really interesting about Hamilton is that on one hand, it's so great because you have all of these actors of color on stage in really great, significant roles, play, playing um, individuals who they typically uh, maybe wouldn't be cast as. Um, and yet what I and some other people have, have noted is, first off, nowhere, almost nowhere in Hamilton does it address the fact that many of these original founding fathers were slave owners um, and that slavery was a major part of this society in which Hamilton and the other founding fathers were living. And so what does it mean for actors of color, um, uh, some of whom are African-American, to be playing um, uh, historically white figures and not address the issue of slavery? So there's that really interesting sort of conundrum. The other piece that I think is really interesting about Hamilton um, is that the... uh, one of the main themes of the show is this, you know, if you work really hard, um, you will succeed in, in, you know, in the U.S. It's, it's, look, it's the American dream. And it's, that's sort of the, the M.O. of Hamilton himself, as, as Miranda uh, portrays him. You know, he's super smart. He, he wrote all of these, these, these documents, and he created all of these things. You know, you work hard like Hamilton, you'll succeed. And let's face it, that's sort of Miranda's story as well, right? He, he's, you know, another exception who, you know, who, who, who breaks the rule, like, you know, uh, a person of color, so talented and, um, you know, has, has really risen not only in theater, but all of these different um, entertainment forms. But, but that, that idea that, oh, if, just if you work hard is what will allow you to succeed, really overlooks all the ways in which racism, structural racism, other boundaries and economic factors really limit people's options in this country. Um, And so there's a little bit of this, Hamilton like sort of creates this mythos of like, oh, you know, like we can all still do it, but it's, it's, it's not, it's just really not true. And so, you know, I, I think we have to sort of temper how wonderful Hamilton is. It's a great work of art, no doubt about it. I think he is, Miranda is so talented. Um, but I think what it says about this country is a lot more complicated than what the show may say on its surface. 
Sure. What, what did you think about the uh, uh, the uh, colorblind casting in Hamilton? That it, it's such a serious show about historical figures, and it and it's mostly historical, dramatized some uh, uh, you know somewhat, but mostly historical figures being played by people of color. Um. So uh, there's another uh, critic out there, I think it's uh, Brian Herrera, who, who talks about this as actually uh, race-conscious casting, um, and which is a little bit different than colorblind casting. So colorblind casting, I think, is more the idea that uh, color really doesn't matter, that you would put anybody who you want in the role, and therefore you could have, let's say, um, some white people playing Hamilton or, or, or the, other, the other founding fathers, but rather that it's part of this idea that it's race-conscious casting that um, that it's it's built within uh, Miranda's uh, idea for the show that it's people of color who are playing the, these roles. And I think, look, my sense is that his statement is that uh, we, I'm not speaking for myself as a white person, but we, people of color, um, have as much right to this story of America and and. and as as white people do, and therefore we should be able to inhabit these roles. Um, and I actually think that's great. Um, and, you know, uh, I think it was a year or two after Hamilton uh, opened that in the Encores series of, of musicals, when they actually decided to revive 1776, they actually took the Hamilton approach a little bit, and they said, okay, even though we have, it's a traditionally a, a white sh- a show with the white founding fathers, they also decided to cast some of the the founding fathers uh, with actors of color. And so I actually, I think it's terrific. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I'm going to paraphrase Miranda, I think he said something like, you know, when high schools start performing, uh, pr- producing or performing uh, Hamilton, you know, if, if like, if it's all white, you know, uh, uh, cast or something like you, you've screwed up. So he's, he's very clear about what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> So we talked about uh, Hamilton and West Side Story, so uh, tremendously serious uh, works of art. And then we switch gears to the Book of Mormon, which is an over-the-top satire. Uh, How do you treat Book of Mormon? You know, Book of Mormon is this other show that... um uh, you know, it was not only an audience hit, but, you know, critics for the most part also really loved it. And... You know, uh, I'm a huge South Park fan, and if you've ever seen South Park, um, you know, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, they are sort of like it's take no prisoners. Um, like every, uh, nothing is off the table, and everyone is, is, uh, has potential to be satirized, as they do here in the Book of Mormon. And so in the show, if you've seen it, you know, the white Mormon missionaries are definitely um, – uh, made fun of and, and, and parodied, um, as are the Ugandan uh, villagers. But um, that said, um, if you look really closely at the show, the, the, the white Mormon missionaries ultimately come off a lot better than the Ugandan villagers do. And not only that, but, and again, the, the, my chapter on this goes a lot more into detail, but the show itself, the Book of Mormon, is a is a send up of classic uh, American musicals, particularly Rodgers and Hammerstein. And because of that, while it's satirizing these old musicals, it's also though celebrating them. And in doing so, what I argue is that if the musical is this very white art form, and that many in many ways is sort of the 
thesis of the book, um, which I talk about in many different ways. But if that's the thesis of the book, that the American musical is for the most part this very white art form, then the Book of Mormon doesn't really sort of um, disturb that at all. It's very much invested in in this white art form by celebrating um, old shows like Rodgers and Hammerstein, even as it parodies them. Hmm. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, uh, you know, Previously in your career, you served as the literary manager and dramaturg of the Philadelphia Theater Company, where you dramaturged um, world premieres by Bill Irwin, Chris Durang, and Terrence McNally. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience at the Philadelphia Theater Company. Uh you know, I have. I'll, I'll say it here on the show because it's it's no longer um, for for a long time. I feel like this is dirty secret I had. Um, so I worked for a long time in theater. I worked for Philadelphia Theater Company. I worked <laughs> for Jewish Repertory Theater in New York. Um, I've I've written plays. I've written about theater. Um, I think I'm very very knowledgeable. I was a theater critic here in New York and in Philadelphia. Um, I, I never studied theater. Um, I was. <laughs> I was, no, I've been a theater geek all my life, and my parents took me and my sister to the theater when we were young. Um, my first, I actually write about this a little bit in the book, but my first show was the first national tour of 42nd Street when I was, I think, nine. Um, and I became a theater geek, like, pretty much right after, and um, would just read, read so much on my own and saw, I mean, to this day, I've probably seen easily over a thousand shows. Um, and... I, so the point is, I had, I had this job. I was an intern at Philadelphia Theater Company um, uh, after college, uh, as uh, working in their literary department. And then I went to grad school. And then fast forward to a whole bunch of different career things that happened. And I came back actually to run their literary department. Uh, again, working with such top-notch uh, playwrights and, and producing the Philadelphia premieres of uh, works by Lynn Nottage and David Henry Wong and. Uh, just lots of other folks. Um, so it was really exciting um, to to be not just reading and studying these things and, and or studying these uh, playwrights, but actually sitting at the table next to them and helping them shape their work. It was it was it was very humbling, I should say. Wow, that's uh, where did you go to school? Undergraduate. Um, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and my I got a PhD in American Literature and Culture at the University of California, Santa Cruz. UC Santa Cruz, wow. Yeah. Uh, how did you end up from from Pittsburgh to UC Santa Cruz? That's uh, that's a huge leap. It's a huge leap. Um, I actually had never really been to. I think I don't think I'd ever been to California before I moved <laughs> there. Um, and also Santa Cruz. If anybody's ever visited there, it's not like any other place in California. Yeah. It is. It's very crunchy. It's uh, very hippie. Um, it's like the 1960s never really left. Um, but it's a, a great, great p program. And, and actually, one of the reasons I did go there, um, which I think has bearings on the, my own work in this book, um, is that it, it's an inherently, it's a very interdisciplinary program. Um, they really encouraged uh, people to to think across disciplines and languages. Um, and my interests have always, they've never been, I mean, I've always had a love for literature and, and reading, um, but my, my interests have never been just on, let's say, novels, even though I, I love novels, um, but I love performance. And so when I was at this program, it allowed me to uh, study, again, not just uh, fiction and things, but uh, theory and 
uh, just uh, just so many other approaches. And actually, it was in a class with, and I'm, I'm really, I promise people, I'm not name dropping here. This has really happened. How the book came about. <laughs> I was in a I was in a seminar with Angela Davis. Um, you know, one as of one the, the as one does at UC Santa Cruz. <laughs> One of the foremost, um, you know, civil rights activists and and and, uh, and and thinkers, and it was just again talk about humbling just to sort of be in her presence and to learn from her. And if that wasn't enough, after I took this class with her and some others um, about uh, critical race theory. Um, uh, this was the time in academia when whiteness studies was coming into being, and Angela Davis offered to do a private tutorial with me and another student on whiteness studies. Again, my mind just blown. Uh, and it was actually in that seminar when I started this book, um, the, the, what became this book. Um, so over oof, at least 15 years ago, and I wasn't writing a book then. I was, you know, I, I was going to write a paper for this class with her, um, because I was interested in how the musical as a cultural art form um, was sort of engaging with with issues around whiteness. I'm sort of thinking that, you know, that you, uh, the character of you, the character of Angela Davis in the third person would make a great play, (laughs) you know, that talk about the whiteness studies, you know, the... (laughs) Somebody else write that one. Um, Especially if the third person was like very conservative, reactionary type of person, you know. But UC Santa Cruz, you probably didn't have very many uh, conservative. No, 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 no. It was a very, very liberal, (laughs) liberal department. Um, And and so after you got your PhD, uh, uh, Doctor Hoffman, we should. call you uh you came I, back you don't i almost never use the title but, but <laughs> as you like but it's really fine <laughs> and uh so uh you came back uh came back east and you've done so many really wonderful things you you uh you are writing writing and reviewing for talk and broadway um you're uh you're writing your own plays you had a play produced in chicago uh, so, uh, even though you say you, you might not have a formal university, uh, study in theater, I, I think you, you, and you just mentioned that you, you've seen a thousand shows. I think that that is, uh, probably a, a study, a PhD level class in theater as well. <laughs> so one of the other things that you did i i wanted to talk about your other your other book the passing game queering um jewish american culture and that was published by syracuse university how, you know how did that uh come about and how did that fit into the story of warren hoffman um so that book is is based more on my uh it's based on my dissertation um so I came in, coming out of grad school and you know, even though the topic is is on the surface very different from this book about Broadway musicals and racial topics, what both books have in common is that they are about performance, the way in which people perform their identities in lots of different ways. The first book is about how people perform, in this case, Jewish identities, LGBTQ identities. Um, and that book actually also, I mean, there's... Uh, 
uh, it has a, well, the first chapter is about um, the, the Yiddish play God of Vengeance, which yeah. many people might know now. For many years, no one knew this play, yeah. um, except once Paula Vogel turned it into uh, Indecent, yeah. the history of this play. Um, uh, now people know what God of Vengeance is. But my first chapter in that book is all about God of Vengeance. Um, uh, and then there's a chapter about, that looks at... Uh, she was a star on, on stage, but also on screen. Uh, Molly Pecan, um, uh, very famous. People might know her as the as Yenta in the movie version of Fiddler on the Roof. Um, so, uh, so yeah, performance has always very much sort of interested me um, and woven its way into into uh, my work. Uh, it's the third time this week I'm talking about the play Indecent. Uh, and because we're sort of joking with somebody else with this uh, sort of mandatory uh, social distancing and lockdown uh, that uh, people, uh, you know, who we we make our we make our life in the theater and having theater and Broadway and so many things shut down from us. We were like, we're going to have to start an underground uh, basement presentations mm-hmm. of these plays for small groups yeah. of people to keep them alive. Tell us about what you uh, what are you doing uh, professional wise right now? You're the executive director of the Association for Jewish Studies in New York, where you lead the largest membership organization of Jewish studies scholars, teachers, and students in the world. Uh, that's that's a very large sentence. Uh, what does that really <laughs> What does that really mean? What does it really mean? Um, it's a really exciting job. I love doing what I'm doing. It's the first time I've led an organization, um, and in many ways, it's um, it's taken me back to my roots. I mean, uh, you know, I went to grad school uh, in American literature and thinking I was going to uh, go off and become a, you know, a tenured professor someplace. Um, and even when I was in grad school, and uh, I knew, look, the, the, the market was, was bad then, and it has become even worse now. Um, but I never found that tenure-track job. Um, I taught, I adjuncted at lots of different places in, in New York and Philadelphia um, and Delaware. Lots, uh, uh, and I love being in the classroom uh, and, and being a researcher, but it's just, it's really hard to, to find uh, tenure-track jobs in the humanities. Yeah. Um, and so I made the decision to, to pivot my career um, and that first job, actually, when I didn't find anything, was going to Philadelphia Theater Company. And it was a wonderful pivot because what it taught me is that I could take all of these skills that I had, um, uh, my interest in the humanities, and not just write about them or teach them in the abstract, but actually you know, do things in this case, help create theater, do talkbacks with the audience. I mean, if a talkback isn't sort of like what you're doing in the classroom, like, then, then what is? Um, so there were these ways I was able to sort of take my interests and, and find um, career options outside of academia. And I, from there, I ended up also, I worked, uh, I was the head of arts and culture for the JCC of Philadelphia. Um, I worked in grant making for a bit. And so this current job actually, in some ways, takes me back to my roots. It has an academic connection. Um, but now having been outside of academia for a long number of years, um, I've had built up in the meantime, all of these nonprofit management skills, which I'm really proud of, mm. and has enabled me to lead an organization. Um, but a lot of what we're doing now um, 
is is also about very much connecting the work that academics are doing with the wider public. Uh, we have a new podcast we launched recently called Adventures in Jewish Studies that, I, that I'm so proud of. Um, we send many of our scholars around the country to give talks. Um, we have other programs that we're running. But I guess um, what's important to me is that even though I come from this academic background, is that I really want my own work and the work of other scholars to, to be able to speak to, to everybody. And that's one thing I'll, I'll just quickly say I'm so personally proud of um, with my book, the, the Great White Way, is that um, uh, yes, it, 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 it has some footnotes in there, um, and it, it is rigorously researched, um, but I purposely wrote it in a way that any fan of the Broadway musical can pick up and read. And that's actually why I'm proud to say that it, it went through a first edition, because it's not just being taught at universities, that people every now and then just stop me and they say, oh, I love Broadway musicals, I read your book, it made me think about the musical in a whole new way. Mm. And that makes me feel really good, because it means that the work that I and others are doing um, is is getting you know, everybody, not just other scholars, to think uh, differently about the world. Uh, I, you know, this is not. This is kind of out of left field. I, I didn't have this in my notes here, uh, and so I don't know what you think about this. Um, but ha- did you see the uh, the the Yiddish fiddler? I did. I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Tell, give me your thoughts on that because uh, because it, it was uh, you know my first experience really with trying to understand Yiddish on uh, uh, you know yeah. As it you know was the yeah. the whole the whole show was in Yiddish and I know no Yiddish other yeah. than general slang and things like that here and there but uh, I, I found it enrapturing and it was so phenomenal for, for the experience that I had seeing the uh, fiddler on the roof in Yiddish so uh, tell me uh, you know what your thoughts are on it so I loved uh, Yiddish Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and it's funny because when it first came out, so I will say, uh, so I do know Yiddish. Um, I, I, I spent two summers in New York learning Yiddish as part of my graduate work, and I needed it for actually my first book. Um, so, when I, so when I was writing about God of Vengeance, all, I did all mm. my research in Yiddish. Um, so I wouldn't call myself fluent now, especially because I haven't used Yiddish as much recently. Uh-huh. But, uh, but, but watching the show, I could understand a fair amount of it without um, subtitles or super titles. And it was, what was so exciting to me was that if you were, it would look, it was a fantastic production in and of itself. And I've seen, I think that's the fourth production of Fiddler I've seen and I've liked other ones, but this one was just, I don't want to say it felt more authentic, although some people said that there was just something that felt the Yiddish paired with that, the, what the content is felt very right. Um, and the thing though, that for people who, who did know Yiddish um, and saw this production would pick up on the fact that the translations that were being given to the audience while very good did not fully capture what some of the Yiddish and Yiddish words and, and sayings that, that, are in the show really meant. So I felt like I felt like I was watching. I felt I had a particular um, connection to the show on, a, on another level because I feel like, um, in some ways, I don't know, it was speaking to me. Um, so that was really exciting. Oh, I'm so glad I, I thought to ask you about that because uh, <laughs> had we finished up, I would have said, "Oh, that's uh, you missed it, <laughs> missed that." So. 
You had mentioned that your parents took you and your sister to see the national tour, 42nd Street, when you were nine or so. Uh, uh, are your parents in the arts? Or what do they do? And it, did your sister follow the same, same path? Or tell us about the family. Look, my, my parents took me and my sister. They, were, they, they definitely found value in the arts. And um, growing up, they took us to see, let's see, I saw the national tour of Into the Woods, Me and My Girl, oh, wow. um, other, there are, I don't know, a bunch of different things. And I think it, it, it goes to, to, to show that there is real value in exposing kids to the arts early if you can. And I think we know that, um, but for a bunch of different reasons, um, financial, interest, otherwise, um, it, we still don't see that in a lot of um, uh, households. You know, I remember uh, one of my first teaching gigs was at Hunter College in New York, where I actually t I taught a class about race in the Broadway musical. The book hadn't even been published yet. I was still um, just trying out this material. Uh -huh. And as part of the class, I uh, I took the class um, to see, actually, to see Fiddler on the Roof, at that time with Harvey <laughs> Firestein. Um, and I had kids in my class, not kids, they were, you know, young adults, um, who were ooh, late teens, early 20s. They had never been to a show before, ever, in their whole lives. And it was, they were so excited to, to see not only you know, a, show, a show on Broadway, and it felt really good to, to introduce them to that, but it also made me realize how lucky and privileged I was to have this upbringing where seeing theater was, was part of something we did. Not, not every week, not even every month, but on a regular enough basis that it created an appreciation in me. Yeah, that's uh, uh you know which is really important about the Edgeham the Hamilton uh program to bring New York City high school students who wouldn't traditionally see it and we saw yeah. um uh, uh to kill a mockingbird at Madison Square Garden with a bunch of New York City 20,000 mm. New York City students and uh Damien Bazadona over at Situation Marketing has got their Situation is a marketing agency for a lot of different Broadway shows and they're involved with bringing a lot of high school uh, students and students who wouldn't traditionally have the uh, financial resources to see Broadway or uh, plays and musicals off Broadway. Um, it, it, these are really important programs that have cropped up over the last couple of years. And I'm always f fascinated to hear about uh, people who are uh, who are are working in and around the Broadway community that have said um, that have said my parents took me to the theater when I was very little. And it, it it seems to be the common theme there. And uh, you don't have to ever become a Broadway uh, make make your living in Broadway to uh, take away the important things that you've learned and apply them later on in your life there. So. Warren, I want to really thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Warren Hoffman is an author. His book is The Great White Way, Race, and the Broadway Musical. We'll have a link to everything in the show notes, including Warren's website and uh, how to get the book and all the other things that you're involved with. Warren, thank you so much again. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. 